Hello and welcome to At The Source. I'm Alex and this is Karis. This is a podcast about food stories. We love talking about food. And eating it. And now we're on a mission to record and share interesting food stories from people all over the UK and beyond. Join us as we explore food in all its glory. Welcome to At The Source. Today's guest is Pam Lloyd, a recognised name in the background of the UK food scene. Pam knows food and is the owner and director of Pam Lloyd PR, a PR agency that focuses on all things edible. She knows it so well that some of the most well-known fresh produce, food, drink and hospitality brands call on her to help them get successful coverage in a saturated marketplace. From following Pam on social media, we know she loves to talk about food and she gets to eat some stunning meals. We're guessing she dreams about food too. Welcome Pam, thank you for letting us interview you today. Thank you. I feel like that was a good in- a good intro there, Karen. Really good intro. <laughs> Hope it covered. But that's the thing we have to try. I want to try and like get in this intro so that people go, okay, this is something that I'm interested in. Yes. But some people like Who is you this? have such a fascinating like. How do I get in everything? But let's start with the easy one. Your first food memory. Well, um, I grew up in a Scottish family living in the Midlands, and my mum was a good. Uh, home housewife cook and we ate a lot of mince and it wasn't particularly (laughs) memorable Um, but I suppose the first exciting food memory I have is of traveling to Scotland to visit my grandma my mum's mum and um, all the Scottish home baking um, that we used to enjoy there so we'd get there and my grandma would have crumpets and potato scones and Mm. homemade raspberry jam and meringues Um, it was a real dream, and it was a four-hour journey, which is when you're a ki- when you're a kid, it seems like a long time. And I used to focus on this amazing afternoon tea that we'd have when we got there. Um, so that's probably my first really memorable food that I um, recall from my childhood. And did so. you bake with her? Not really. She had it. She kind of had it all down by the time by the time we got there. And I think also now I'm a grown-up, I realise. Quite a lot of that was probably bought from... They had lovely Scottish bakeries that you could go and buy it from. And also, um, uh, there's a big Italian population in in and around um, Glasgow. And the Italian ice cream van used to come round, um, which we definitely didn't have in the Midlands. That was really exciting. Uh, and the fish van, which again, we didn't have. So there were all these kind of Scottish foodie traditions that I was exposed to by these visits to my grandma so you said that you grew up in the midlands whereabouts were you in wolverhampton oh okay i'm from leicester so yeah not too far away yeah anyway enough about that so in caris's very good intro um she talks about the fact that you run pamloid pr but we know that before that you had a very different career so can you tell us a bit about that and kind of answer uh, what came first was it the food or the pr okay well Yes, I grew up in the Midlands. I went to Wolverhampton Girls High School, which was a um, a girls' grammar school. And I really wanted to cook. I loved cooking and home economics, as food tech was called then. But I was very much discouraged by school and, and in fact, by my parents from pursuing that while I was at school. And I guess they were focused on as many girls as possible, getting as many academic Mm. um, O-levels and A-levels as as they were then. But my dad said, if you don't do it now, 
and I really think you should do a degree, like a, a proper degree, I will pay for you to do it later, a bit like a gap year. So I didn't carry on and, and um, do cooking at school. And I went to university in London and did an English degree. And when I finished, I still really wanted to do it. So I was very, very fortunate. My dad paid for me to do the year at Leith's School of Food and Wine. And finally, really after having I hung on, I had this wonderful year of doing something that I really wanted to do. And I really finally found that I was doing something I could do and I really enjoyed and met lots of like-minded people who, for all sorts of different reasons, also wanted to do that. And I really thought in the course of the year, at the end of it, I'd like to be a chef. Found something that I, you know, really, I was really into and I thought I could be good at. And so at the end of the year, I did get a job as a chef and I was working in a commercial kitchen in Old Street and we predominantly did fancy parties in the evening and what what then was called director's dining room, director's lunches. So we made these lunches and delivered them in the city and it could be um, lunches for six or 60. But what I found was that although I'd done my year of training, I was so inexperienced. So I could make coco van for four, let's say, but I was instantly expected to scale that up to mm. working in a team, making it for 400. Wow. And I just couldn't cope with... Um, so they, they sort of took me on and paid me. I was on the, whatever the bottom pay scale was, which is fine if you take into consideration the person's level of experience mm-hmm. and apply it accordingly. So in, in my business now, we we've just promoted an intern and uh, kept her on as an account exec but you take on an intern with the awareness that you know they're keen and they've got loads of ideas and lots to offer but you don't expect them to go out and pitch on mm-hmm. day two mm. so it was a really tough kitchen environment and there was lots of throwing things and shouting and was that you or someone no, else? that was someone else <laughs> and me crying into my baton carrots oh, no. I think I started at 7am and I finished when I finished which was regularly midnight Such um, a hard life, then I had to get it? across London and, and back again so I lasted three months and I quit in the middle of service at the Almeida Theatre in Islington about two weeks before Christmas and I didn't have a job and I really needed a job and I came out, it sort of hit the cold air and realised, no, I don't have anywhere to work or any money. And they were running, there was an ad in the Evening Standard at the time for sales assistants to cover the Christmas period and the January sales at Harrods. So I applied for that and they place you according to your interest or skill. So I got placed in the food halls. Which sounds <laughs> which sounds like a dream and it, 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 it is great, but I completely got stuck serving pork pies and sausage rolls to Japanese tourists. And there's sort of a combination of inertia and just not knowing really where to go or what to do next set in. And I ended up there for two and a half years. And I did move in that time. I moved from the pie counter to uh, they have this fancy traiteur counter with 
smoked salmon pate and terrine and all that kind of thing up a level. which yeah. was up a level and then I um every day they have a van come from the royal palaces and somebody has to prepare their order for them put that all together pack it up get it ready for the van so I started doing that that's so really I, cool that which is really cool. cool and having a real insight into what they order um, and was how they like rolls? it packaged. It wasn't all sausage rolls. Were there any sausage rolls? I don't think there were any sausage <laughs> rolls. It was more sort of interleaved Iberico ham, um, oh. you know, that as you might imagine. Yeah. It was, like, and it, it was good, but I was really aware that I'm, I've kind of done two and a half years now as a sales assistant, and I, there's nothing wrong with that and no shame in it, but I probably do need to try and move on. And then, as luck would have it, there was again an advert in the standard for an assistant in the marketing department at Harrods, which I applied for. And so I moved from the shop floor to the marketing department and learned all about print and copy and copy checking and proofreading. I was the assistant to the production director. And then again, maybe about a year after that, a girl in the press office who was press officer for food halls and restaurants moved to Sainsbury's press office and I got her job. And that was my start in to food PR, combining, I guess, having done an English degree and knowing how to write and having an interest in food and knowing how to cook and having worked in the food halls. The whole thing came together and that was how I landed up in food PR. So the food definitely came first and then the PR. So where does that bring us to in your timeline? How old are you at that So point? I'm... Approximate's fine. <laughs> <laughs> About 24. So you were still quite young at that yeah. point. Saying you'd already done your degree mm. in English and you'd done a year at least. Mm. So you were at Harrods in total for... Six years. Six years. Yeah, so I think I must have done a couple of years in the press office and that was such a great experience although looking back all those years now I realize it was very much what we would call reactive PR so the journalist comes to you Mm. there's a constant interest in Harrods Food Halls I'm sure Harvey Nichols and Selfridges are the same so it will be everything from we're running a taste comparison on Christmas puddings which Every magazine, every food magazine still does. Mm-hmm. Well, somebody has to run around and get the Christmas pudding and the mince pies and the Christmas cake, whatever it is they want to try, pack it up, send it out, go back and forward and um, deal with that. So the job was almost exclusively reacting to requests for interviews, visits, photo shoots, product. Uh, there actually was very little having to think about what story are we trying to come up with and Mm. sell in Mm. because it was almost a full-time job just dealing with um, incoming inquiries yeah and I'm probably talk about that a little bit later but I'd I'd be interested to know if you think it's probably still the same I have followed what um, what they've they've done over the years I think there's I'm sure there's still a lot of that there's also a constant evolution of departments so they they have launched and relaunched departments within the food halls and um, at the time I was there there, I think there were 19 restaurants including all the cafes and so they all turn over and I think I noticed they've just launched a either a vegan restaurant or a, a kind of veg, veggie bar or something like that. So I think they're, I gather they're probably promoting that as well. I'm sure they're still sending out Christmas puddings. 
Okay, so this brings us to how did you end up in Bristol? Well, so after all that time, um, I think I realised that really I this is this has been such a great experience, such a great job, but I kind of need to move on now and do something else. So I've had this experience in in-house PR and it wasn't terribly well paid and I never was going to be able to buy a flat or, or sort of set myself up. So I started looking for jobs outside London and randomly applied for jobs in places that I thought I liked the sound of, didn't necessarily know very much about them. And a job came up in Bristol working for an agency that at the time had a Marks and Spencer's account um, and also St Ival, which is a, a dairy brand that was subsequently bought by Dairy Crest. So I interviewed for that and got the job and moved to Bristol in 1998 to come and work um, in an agency. So that would be my first experience of swapping from an in-house role to an agency role. And how did, how did that go? Because I know from my experience mm. in, in sort of applying for jobs, moving from in-house to mm. agency is massively difficult and also a really big jump. Yeah, it was very different. I didn't realise that you had to be accountable. You, you have to report on everything you do. You have to justify everything you do. You have to have tangible results that in-house, it, it just didn't seem to... That we just didn't have that level of accountability as long as you were doing what you were there to do and positive coverage was coming mm. in I'd never invoiced anyone for anything um, because it was all one sort of big pot of in-house money and I guess I wasn't se- I wasn't senior enough to have to to deal with that side of things so it was very different but very good for that um in terms of i think i needed to to open my eyes and and see things a bit more commercially than maybe i had been doing one of the questions that we have on our little list of questions which we rarely stick to to be fair was um who was your first food client and i think you've answered that it was marks and spencers which is Going from starting mm. your food PR career at Harrods mm. and then moving to an agency where you worked mm. with Marks and Spencers mm. is kind of the dream, I think. I think it's also a little bit of luck because that Harrods job really kind of came about luckily. And I'm sure I got the job in the agency with the Marks and Spencers account because I'd worked at Harrods. But you're right, that did both of those things did set me up. And from then on, you know, I always had some those recognizable brands on my cv which Mm -hmm. definitely didn't do me any harm and now you run your own pr agency can you tell us a bit about a typical day running a food and drink pr agency well it's important to say i don't it's not just me there's a a team of us um generally around about six or seven um, at any given time so on a typical day there might be Somebody in London dropping off samples at media houses. So we put together a schedule um, and deliver to, might be Olive, Delicious, BBC Good Food, Woman and Home, 
in the course of a day. Um, so the idea of that is to deliver the product direct to the journalist, get them to try it, tell them a bit about it. Sometimes we have a client with us. Someone might be doing that. Someone might be on a photo shoot. Either we, we now do a lot of in-house content. Um, so it might be physically taking photographs or styling food or working mm. with a pro photographer or videographer. Um, it's always gorgeous. I always thank you. Thank I'll you. Eat that. Thank you. Well, yeah, they are actually the the um, the carrots. Yes. Um, the the, the work carrots. that you've been doing with those guys. I've never wanted to eat carrots. Before. Oh well, we'll and have I to get you you're, some. You're doing your job. Um, it's the schmutz yeah. for me, actually. Yes. They are. <laughs> and they're just the dream. Those guys. They're they're the UK shallot growers are such hardworking um, grafters year in year in year in year out growing their shallots um and they're very much um the type of client that says i just want you to get on with it you promote our product we'll grow the shallots i'm on the tractor don't call me crack on <laughs> so yeah that that that's a good example of something that periodically will say right let's get a net of shallots for all our media contacts and either send them out or take them photograph them somebody might be um writing press materials we do now do restaurant bar launches so maybe researching people to invite to that who Mm. we think will write about it and and make a noise about it and then there might be a currently there we've got a pitch on friday so there might be proposals being developed brainstorms going on presentations being written so there's generally quite a lot going on Mm. from sort of behind the scenes not not very glamorous um, not doesn't seem very exciting, um, sort of reporting and that that kind of work which has to be done, mm-hmm. through to as I say, kind of organising launches or launching new products. So no day is re- there isn't such a thing as really a typical day. Every day is different, which is great. And you're not solely Bristol based either. So while we know you yes. in Bristol as you know it's Pamoy PR yes. based in Bristol, you're national. In fact. The business went the other way round until about three or four years ago. We really didn't have any clients in Bristol. So we started off predominantly promoting fresh produce. So we've run the campaign to promote the British asparagus season since the business started. British shallot growers, likewise. And they are national accounts because those products are available nationally. And the job is to promote them nationally to consumers and through consumer media and also to to trade audiences and then a little while ago as I say maybe four or five years ago we had the notion that you know it's crazy we're living in this increasingly foodie city as it was at the time so lots happened in the last five years and yet we don't have any clients in Bristol so that was interesting really going from having lots of experience but having no experience of of promoting a smaller more niche um, Mm. bristol based or southwest based product so for that you've just kind of got to start somewhere and get stuck in maybe take it take a a small job and and start to build that but no you're 
you're absolutely right. We run lots of national accounts as well as Southwest and Bristol-based ones. It's really fantastic that you, you chose Bristol through the fact that you were looking for jobs and yes. to get out of London. And now actually Bristol is this huge foodie heart yeah. of the UK. And you really, yeah, it really, it's fantastic. It really all fell into place there, yeah. And that brings me to the next question in the food scene. What are some of the big challenges that you're seeing for your mm-hmm. for your clients okay. at the moment the really challenging ones for them um plastic is is absolutely huge for all of them i would say and something that we're really encouraging all clients to think about we've run media training for several of them and how to how to answer questions around plastic uh, what are they doing acknowledging that it's not an easy fix there might not be a comfortable answer at the moment, but better to have an answer and, and be prepared and have a plan that you're working towards. So, for example, if you're a dairy brand, moving away from plastic cart- milk cartons is really, really difficult. And I think we all know that that's something that, um, as a society, we need to work towards, but it's not something that's going to be fixed overnight. Mm. But for goodness sake, don't hide from it. Yeah. You know, have a plan and, and be prepared to, to speak. So plastic is really big. And in fact, all all issues around sustainability. And I think, you know, every, every business, be it a food business or a, any commercial business, needs to have um, a sustainability pr- policy and a plan in place. See, that's such, a, an, ang- such an important angle that perhaps we as customers don't think of is that is that that training and giving mm. um, food businesses the confidence to to say the right things mm. and say there are people out there online, especially on Twitter, that will just troll you, um, and how you respond is yes. going to impact your business, isn't it? So, Definitely, and I think to be able to say it's better to be able to say no, we don't have the answer, but we are working on it, and this is what we have in place, rather than either nothing, mm. which looks awful, yeah. or well, it, you know, it just is what it is. And that seems as if you're not bothering. Um, and Brexit, uh, which I think is massive for, again, all businesses, particularly for our fresh produce clients, almost all of whom are reliant on European workers helping mm. them to grow and pick their produce. So that is a really big issue that we're working on, that they're working on, that they need they need support with and you know leading up to March it will be really interesting to see how it plays out for them and I imagine they'll there will that will be an ongoing issue that we'll have to deal with. So where do you see plastic and Brexit you know over the next say obviously Brexit's a little bit more Mm. short term in some ways Mm. but where do you see how maybe how do you see some of these problems being solved or I mean that could be just like a massive answer and you could be here for hours so (laughs) I think that the interesting job of of the PR is you're sort of navigating a way around it's not necessarily what do I think Mm. how can we help and sometimes it's a case of sort of prodding and encouraging that thought and a discussion um, within the client business to help them to work through well what do what do they think and what's right for them and then how can we communicate that and also to try to I think to try to take the hysteria out of it and right, what can we what can we sensibly and usefully say 
I'm really encouraged to work with clients like Boston Tea Party who have, you know, what wasn't Pam Lloyd PR's idea to ban disposable mm. disposable coffee cups it was their idea but our role was to sort of come alongside and say yeah I think you really can do this giving them the confidence to to push it through exactly right and also um really crucially to sort of hold their hand and say don't dilute this I think the clients quite often the client's um instinct is to have an idea and then slightly panic and climb down a bit Mm. and do a a sort of 50% version which as PRs we want them to do the whole version because that's the thing that makes it newsworthy and that's the thing that makes it a really good story Mm. so something like that in terms of your question about you know where do I see it going I would love to think that more clients would really make a stand like that and and do something really wholeheartedly that makes a difference and challenges bigger producers and, and bigger brands to to come alongside and do the same so that that would be the dream that's a great answer something a little bit more fun what's the weirdest food trend you've seen over the years well I think weird is really subjective so when I was growing up I think being vegetarian was considered weird weird to be vegetarian so that was probably 40 years ago now so I think I think weird is uh, yeah a, a, a subjective thing to me tube egg is weird egg egg log oh that's oh, weird. It makes me shudder. But maybe oh. if if that's what you if your business produces that for putting in pork pies, you don't think that's weird. I, I it's to me. <laughs> and then I think in terms of trends that are weird, you know, over the last five years we've seen the rise and fall of clean eating. Mm. So we went from clean eating not being a thing to being everywhere and everyone was publishing books about clean eating and talking about clean eating and Certain individuals based their entire career around clean eating, didn't they? And then that's kind of fallen out of favour. So I think it's interesting how the, the so, so say trends, and there you know there are some useful things to pull out of of that. But I think we've all sort of realised that. Well, I think from my side, you know, a bit of moderation is mm-hmm. um, is is very sensible. And at the same time as we had clean eating, we had cronuts and freak shakes oh, and, and, all freak that, shakes. And, all, and all of those trends going on. So, yeah, I think, I think um, our role is to be aware of all of those things and kind of work out how can they be applied, how can they be useful to our clients and the brands that, that we represent without going so far down that any of those bandwagons that we sort of lose sight of what we're there for in the first place do you have a couple of predictions for what might be coming up weird or not weird it yeah. could be like totally normal because yeah. I know that we go through phases I know that back home you couldn't turn a corner without running into a sushi shop yeah um, and the sushi that we have in Australia is very different to the sushi mm. here like we have these things that are about yeah, the size of a fist. It's like a, it's like half a sushi roll that they don't bother cutting up. So you go around chomping on it. Wow. And that you just couldn't go anywhere without running into something like that. So, what would a couple of predictions be? Well, I think the 
trend, if, if we want to call it that. I think that eating less meat, being more mindful of eating meat is something that will, is definitely set to run, in, in my opinion. I think there are more uh, people not eating meat and following plant-based diets than ever before. And certainly they're very vocal and it's a, it, that is a really big movement that will continue. I think a, sort of slightly aligned to that, this sort of focus on gut health and fermenting mm. and all of that. I don't think we haven't seen the end of that yet. In the office, we're wondering, is rum the new gin? So we've had gin and gin and gin and every different type of gin, um, including non-alcoholic gin. Um, See, I think that rum was around. There was a rum boom Mm. pre-gin. So when I lived in the Midlands, I was the marketing manager for a group of bars. And we um, spent ages getting independent artists in to paint up these amazing rum bars on the wall. And we had all these rums. And then... Two years later, we were painting over it and calling it a gin, gin bar. bar. Yeah. So maybe now we just need to scrape off the paint and mm, have, that's have right. the rum bar back. And then I also think I'm really interested, um, because I have kids myself, I'm really interested to read um, in the media recently all the coverage about young people not drinking as much. So mm. 16 to 24-year-olds, there's more 16 to 24-year-olds that don't drink at all than ever before. So I think that's a, a trend um, that we're seeing people either drinking less or not drinking. Um, hopefully so they can spend their money on food. Yeah, hopefully. Or, or maybe so they can, you know, enjoy, maybe the same as with food, enjoy whatever it is they enjoy of a better quality mm, less thing. often mm, than... Um, mm. And I don't think we hear as much about so say binge drinking but mm. then again is that just drinking I, I you know it's a tough one it's, it's an interesting one isn't it because university was all about the you know the cheap cheap pint drinks yeah and, um snake bite and black did you have that in australia karen you probably did but I, i've never been a big drinker personally so i can't really comment yeah interesting mm. and so you mentioned your kids do mm. they do they cook they do they're very interested in food um i've now started posting a menu for the week on the fridge because i just grew tired of um every day the first i banned them from the first thing they'd say to me when they saw me after school was what's for dinner I said, you haven't even said hello and what's for dinner it's Love on the fridge <laughs> i know so i've started making a, a plan for the week which i find really helpful and they do cook, but they definitely do eat. So I'm sort of <laughs> starting to encourage them um, to join in. And actually, at the moment, my youngest, George, he's nine, he's probably keener to get involved um, than Joseph, who's 12. It's an interesting question and one that um, Diana Henry, the food writer, gave me some advice once, which was don't talk too much about your kids and what they eat because everyone will have an opinion on, mm. you know, it's such an emotive subject. Um, and they are really good and really adventurous eaters, but, you know, you don't, you don't want that to come over as mm. wildly middle-class or that, yeah, you know. Not. Well, I can see, because we're sitting in your kitchen, I can see you've got a whole bookcase full of cookbooks mm. and your kitchen looks really handy for baking, unlike my kitchen at home. 
I imagine you yeah you, you tend to and cook I, quite a bit. I do, and I really love cookbooks, and I I cook from them every week. Um, I would say every week I make at least two meals that I've never made before, which I may may, I may end up never making again. But I really I. I do, like everyone, I do have things that I cook out of my head, um, but I love cooking to a recipe, and I know that's not everybody's way, but it really gives me such a lot of pleasure, and I always have maybe half a dozen books on the go at one time, and I'm, for the last maybe year, I've been really fixed on Meat Free Monday, because my boys are very carnivorous they absolutely love meat and I'm really aware that in their lifetime our relationship with eating meat I think will mm. will really have to change and you know they can't get into a groove where mm. every meal has to have meat um, they need to be flexible they may have mates who are vegetarian or vegan in future they yeah. you know at some point they're going to have to fund their own eating so I'm really set on that. Um, so I've really been enjoying um, Anna Jones' book at the moment and using that a lot, particularly mm. for Mondays. Um, and just enjoying having to you know, be inventive and sort of work out what will they and won't they cope with. So yeah, they're, they're good and they're a, you know, they're a joy to cook for. And actually, we've been sat here this entire time. Well, I've been sat here staring at this plate of ginger cake that George made. And and I can't eat it because Caris will shout at me for chomping. You can have some when we're finished. I've I've been watching it. Yeah. Yeah, he's good about that. He saw them, they were making ginger bread and ginger cake on the bake-off. And he kept saying, you know, I want to do that. So I think it's it's good. But I'm really, um, again, I, I... thinking particularly of Joe Ingleby. Do you know Joe Ingleby at mm. Taste and Season? And I've had some great conversations with her around cooking with kids and cooking with kids is not icing biscuits. No. Um, it should, so it's, it should be anyway. So it's great that he wants to make ginger cake, but, you know, he also, he'll chop an onion, he'll mm. help make a risotto. And that's really important to me that they leave, ultimately, if they leave the ever nest. leave the nest. Um <laughs> you know, with a dozen actually useful meals they can make. Because they don't need, you know, if you if you never iced a biscuit, you'd be fine. Yeah, exactly. I think, I think James Wetlaw said something to that effect as well. He was sort of talking about, you know, his kids know that they can jump up next to the cooker and help. Yeah. They can, they, and they know they what know. he does as well. Yeah. They know that food comes from the kitchen from his parents' hands yeah. or their parents' I hands. I heard him say that. To, That's quite right. You know, and I think it's really important that yeah. we are educating our kids to do that. And here, you know, they can see that from from behind me where the cooker is to where we're sitting where they do their homework, you know, they can they can see it happening and that's really I think well that's really important to me that they they know where that's coming from. All right, Alex, you can have your ginger cake. Stop staring at it. <laughs> <laughs> Pam, thank you so much. This is just a standard thing that we say every episode now, but I think we could probably keep going all day, but we better let you get on and do some work. Yeah, thank you very much for having pleasure, me. Pleasure, complete pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please head over to atthesource.com to have a look at some of the others that we have up there. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, and now also on Stitcher, which is quite exciting. Uh, We're also on Twitter, at The Source. Until next time. Over and out.